Hold on, sirens. They're so faint. I feel like I can hear them outside my own house instead. Thank you for that. You're welcome. That did not sound like it was coming from outside of my house. <laughs> sirens are coming from inside of the house. Get out! They're coming from inside the house. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Book Retorts. I'm Sam. I'm Danielle. And this is the podcast about sharing your weird media finds with your friends who don't know what you're talking about. Yay! Danielle, today we're going to figure out just how much you do know what I'm talking about, because we're on our sixth part of the Dan Simmons novel, The Fall of Hyperion. So many parts. How many more parts Six. are there going to be, Sam? There's going to be one more part. I've, I've managed to whittle it down to one more part. Yeah, very exciting. Good work. Oh, man. This is a far denser book than the first Hyperion. The first Hyperion was a lot of very nice descriptive stuff that you can skip over if you just want to focus on the plot. This book is full of intrigue and machinations and is complicated. So it's been taking a while. I'm glad he's stepping up his game. Good job, Mr. Simmons. Oh man, you're gonna oh you're gonna love this part, I'm sure. <laughs> but before we get to that, Danielle, we have to figure out where we left off. Where did we leave off in part five? Do you remember? Okay, so the time tombs had been opened. Yes. Good. And <laughs> I did not remember that last time, but that did happen in part four. All right. And gold star <laughs> out of the gate. Very good. Very good. So we're in part five. The time teams have been opened and there is much going on. Now, what's going on? <laughs> Less good. <laughs> bronze star. Bronze star for this one. <laughs> okay. So what's his face? Severn. Severn. Is is. This was that the episode where he was like he decided to kind of split ways with me a little bit and he's like wandering yeah, around all the, the planets. Okay, so he's like on a planet sabbatical and he's just going from place to place. He ends up this is gonna be nonlinear, I'm sorry. Um he ends up in a like library of sorts. Okay, you are like halfway through the chart here. We gotta back it up just a little bit. Do we have to? Because I think each story I I can remember each story better. I'll sound more more, more I'll sound more coherent if I can, like... Good. Yeah, yeah, prove your point there. <laughs> if I can just follow the path of each character instead of making this make sense chronologically in the story. Yeah, but you haven't even followed Severn's path, like, chronologically. What does it matter? He went from planet to planet. What more do you possibly need? He decides to, like, drift out on a boat. We need the context for why he's going to planet to planet. Because he left Mina. Because Mina's what? like, your work here is done. We're getting rid no. of Hyperion. Feel no. free to travel. <laughs> Do you remember what major event is happening? Um, they're going to give up all like, Hyperion and all of the primary planets or whatever The, the web called. is being invaded. Right. Right. So, so this well, is the context. It's been happening for like a while, hasn't it? Well, I mean, they learned about it, but like it is now hours away here. And this is when he decides to take a little walk while Mina gives a speech about the imminent invasion and tries to like tell people what the plan is. Right. And then her, the guy that she assigned to be her primary captain guy, he's like, I would just get rid of all the first worlds and just go defeat the second worlds because that'll give us a few years to like shore up. <laughs> Basically, he's like, you know, cut off the first wave worlds and say, consolidate the fleet and then go send the fleet out to meet the invasion fleet before you're in a defensive position where you have to like defend a planet you know meet them in open space and she's decided also to give up hyperion because time teams are open who cares 
Right. Basically, he's like, it's it's fine. I don't need any more. My job, my, my job was done. to get it into the web, and I did that. And we'll get more into that a little bit in this part. But the important thing is, all of this is causing chaos on the planet. Right. Because they don't want to die. <laughs> yes. And so this is what causes Severn to be chased by a mob where he eventually right, flees. the church. Well, I would might have got might have got to that, but no, because you ended the point where this where the, oh, where the that's whole right. Play yeah, the church. Okay, it's church is yeah. a strike or something, and there and then what's his face? The crazy <laughs> artist guy was like, he he's part of this whole thing, and everybody chases him. He runs away, and he ends up in the library. Just a one point of clarification: he is an artist, A R N I S T, which okay, is whatever. What, I mean, it's very important. <laughs> <to think of. laughs> Just saying, super not important. You could have brought that up several episodes Look, ago. If I'm not being nitpicky about all the crazy. <laughs> terminology in Hyperion. What am I even doing here, Daniel? Okay, well, stupid Arnest decided to tell everybody that he was part of the government. Yeah, and so okay. everybody chases him. He ends up in the library. It turns out that that's like the same place where other Keats, Johnny yep. Keats, used to hang out all the time. Very He's like, good. Very <laughs> odd. And he, I don't know, does some research. I forget what happens at the library, to be honest. He falls asleep reading Keats poems and getting very emotional. Perfect. That's right. He reads his own poetry and he's like, I'm so good. I'm amazing. Okay, okay. He knows he is not actually Keats. He's a, a different. He sees it as a distinct, like recreation of Keats. So it's still he doesn't see it as his poetry. He still sees Keats as a separate person than him. Sure, I mean, fine line, but whatever. Yeah, I'm just saying he doesn't think it's his poetry. He says it's Keats poetry, and I'm just he is me, but I'm also like he. I am like him, but he is not me. Right. Meanwhile, Braun and Johnny Keats are yep. in the web, hanging out, living their best well, lives. Not the web. The datum okay, plane. The whatever. They're in the datum plane. And <laughs> the web is our internet. The web in this book is the interconnected planetary systems through the Farcaster network. Right. And they meet Unky Keats. And Unky, Unky Keats, Keats. your favorite person. Do you remember his <laughs> actual name or its actual name? Uman. Yeah, there you go. You're welcome. Wait, uh, I'm very so, impressed. This is your I'm best really one in a long time. Too. I'm really this impressed. This is really good. <laughs> I'm very impressed that I'm remembering this right now. This is so impressive. <laughs> I mean, look, I give you a lot of guff for being terrible at this, but you know, credit where credit is due. You're knocking it out of the park tonight. I know. I'm top of my game. This might be the highlight, you guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> the rest of the episode's terrible. All right. So Uman, also known as uh, Gunky Keats. Why do we Keats, call him Monkey Daddy Keats? Keats? We call him Monkey Keats because he's technically the father uh, of Johnny Keats. The Keats hybrids, yeah. The Keats, yeah. He's like a, uh, I don't know what his technically is. He's an AI thing. He is some kind of AI construct. They call him a megalith. Mm-hmm. And, so yeah. he's a big deal. And he's made all the eats. And he tells them, well, one has to die, one gets to live. Woohoo! And between Braun and Keats, not between yeah, the two Keats. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And to be clear. then, yes, between Braun and, and Johnny Keats. Uh, spoiler, Johnny Keats dies again. And- <laughs> no, that's fine. Again, for like the third time in this book. <laughs> and he tells them that there are uh, ultimate intelligences out there that yes. the AIs find out that they're actually they may actually manage to create the ultimate intelligence, and the ultimate intelligence is sending back information saying, "Oh, by the way, there's also another ultimate intelligence." <laughs> Don't you hate that when you show up to a party <laughs> and there's another ultimate intelligence dressed just like you? <laughs> And this one is uh, created – so one was created by the AI, which is like the, one of their ultimate goals. And then the other one is created through magic human, is in just like the human consciousness, somehow has created the ultimate intelligence somehow. Natural processes, you would say. like sure. Evolved out of human consciousness. And it's a part of a triad because all things are. And <laughs> the, the uh, emotional one, what's, what's the part of the, the empathy? The empathy yes. one. 
It Do you remember like, the other two parts, just out of curiosity? Empathy? No, because that was the only important one was the empathy one, Sam. Yeah, I think there was the void that binds, and sure. I can't remember the third part. It was probably so like, you, I mean, who cares? You're right, you can't cares? remember. I can't remember. I just, I just remember the void that binds being hilarious. <laughs> so void that binds, uh, nothing to do with anything right now. But the nope. empathy of the part of the triad is like, peace out, suckers, time suckers. I'm going to like go <laughs> oh, yeah. back in time, hang out. Pretend to be human. I may or may not have uh, awareness that I am actually an ultimate intelligence. So it Why could it be any human because it creates a stalemate between the two ultimate intelligences, which is like the war that's going on right now. Yes, there's a war going on. That Yes, you, make sure we know there's the two ultimate intelligences are engaged in war because Highlander rules, I guess, there can be only one. That's right. There's like the quickening or whatever going on. <laughs> <laughs> there it's actually true. was a quickening. That was when the artificial intelligences gained true intelligence. But that's a different right. quickening. It's so, all very interweaved. <laughs> so there's this war going on between these two. But if the if they can never find the empathy piece or the all three parts of the triad or whatever, then technically the AI ultimate intelligence, like it refuses to default to a win. It's like no, we must fight fairly and squarely and actually win this thing otherwise it doesn't count i'm unclear again this could just be me being unclear from reading this or the book could be unclear on this point but i am unclear whether the ai ui is reluctant to fight in that case or simply you know there's no way to defeat the ultimate intelligence unless it's all present like you defeat the first two like you haven't defeated it because there's still a third part out there yeah so, so I'm not sure if it's like a honor thing or if it's just like a practical thing that we don't understand because these things are beyond our understanding. Right. So that was all happening. That was the major just plot points, I think. There was something about Martin and just had King Billy meeting up on the tree of pain. Yeah. I mean, that's sort of irrelevant, doing, but you can talk about that. It was funny. <laughs> doing poetry together. <laughs> yeah. That's good enough. Sure. <laughs> Keith starts, or not Keith, uh, Martin starts doing Keith's poems and everybody's like, oh, that feels so much better. I'm no longer in pain. And then um, the time tube strike, the strike was like, get off my lawn, shut up, gets up there. And then the time tubes opened or whatever, time caught up and shook them all and they had to stop because it hurt again. Yeah, the okay, good, end. perfect. That was a great summary. Love it. <laughs> it was everything, right? No, anything. not even close. <laughs> what else happened? Something with Johnny Treetops. Well, Kassad started fighting the Shrike. Uh, Remember, sure. Kassad and Moneta, Moneta went to this vast future where, uh, you know, there were a bunch of Shrikes that appeared. Wasn't Yeah, that happened previously, like at the end of the other one. All right. And I thought that happened they're... part of this too. But anyway, the point is, that's still a thing. And that's like part of it. And the other thing is, who did Severn run into after he left the library, the archives? I don't know, Sam. Who was it? So remember, he leaves the archives with the archivist, who is a Catholic scholar. Mm-hmm. And oh, he, goes he to runs Patchum, into Dre- to Father whoever. Paul DeRay. Paul DeRay. I mean, was, I was correct. Yes. The yeah, they falls, he, he runs into him, which is weird because he was supposed to be back um, in the time tombs, but it turns out he was like wandering because at one point, if anybody remembers, several books ago, <laughs> he, he wandered off and it turns out that he like saw a pit of red and was like, cool, I'm not going down there. That seems like a bad idea. But then he was yeah. trapped, so then he had to go down it. And then somehow, yeah. oh, he finds like a room full of cruciforms because sure. And no, then, the labyrinth is full of cruciforms. Okay, like all even the walls. creepier. Yeah. And, dead, and dead people. Wall to wall, human bodies, all completely dead. And they may or may not be creating, um, like, human cruciform armies. And they 
Then he ends up somehow back. (laughs) That's a good idea, though. And he somehow ends up like back out, not in the time tubes. (laughs) He's like back. So just to summarize this part a little bit more clearly than that, he goes down into the time into the into the labyrinth. No, and finds it full of bodies, except for a path hewn through by some bladed machine. Clearly, the strike. Strike. And it looks like all those people are all this this time period that Dory existed, even though he is somehow now transported far into the future. Mm-hmm. And he speculates that if all the labyrinths on all the nine labyrinth worlds were all filled with people, they would hold the entire population of the hegemony easily. Trillions. Crazy. And he runs to the Shrike, who takes out his parasite. It de-cruciforms him. Oh, that's right. Yeah, it's important. I forgot. <laughs> yeah, that's why I brought it up. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. That was important. I'll give you credit for that. And then the I think Shrike, I pretty much said the rest of it, but sure. Well, and the Shrike manages to open a portal, takes him into space, where he pushes the Shrike then pushes Duray through a Farcaster, which he ends up on Patchum. So he may or may not have won the contest for who gets their wish granted. He may or may not have won the contest for who gets their wish granted, and also the Shrike now has access off planet, potentially meaning he could access it could access the web, and who knows what that means? If that's good or bad. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be honest, I would not have pegged Paul Duray as the one who got his wish granted. <laughs> I, <laughs> I mean, didn't I'm really all... even think he was that important. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, if anyone deserves to have their wish granted, which is basically to die and stop suffering, it's Paul Duray who's like crucified himself to a Tesla tree and managed I to get know. himself murdered for like a year straight. That was a good story. Yeah. So anyway, uh, that's pretty much it. They leave off at the end with Paul Duray saying that he wants to go to God's Grove to go talk to the true voice of the world tree to, to, so he can ask them what happened to Hep Mastine and get Hep Mastine's story, which he never told because he was killed. <laughs> His story was that he was going to drive a tree into space. <laughs> Spoiler alert, Daniel. That's the story he gets. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! That's the best story that just like didn't get told and you just kind of casually learn about it later. <laughs> It is such the most insane story, and they're like, you didn't even spend any time on it. It's so sad. But before they go, they ask Severin to try and concentrate and, like, go to sleep now and meditate. Because now that Severin has learned, he is dreaming, quote-unquote, he's interfacing, understanding results and experiences, not just from the other Keats Cybrid, but from all across the web, and he can do it at will. He doesn't have to, like, fall asleep. He can sort of just, like, meditate his way into it. Perfect. That brings us up to part six. Part six. So I mentioned that because we, we we jump in part six. Severin has just gone into his meditative state. And we open with him getting flashes of confusing images from across the web. The four ships retreating under assault from swarms. Refugees far casting away from threatened worlds. Riots on the other web worlds that aren't threatened. And we cut to the war room, where Counselor Albedo is complaining that there has to be a better way to defeat the Ousers than the current plan, which involves, you know, sacrificing a bunch of planets, and then blowing up the Farcasters on those planets to cut them off from the web. Right. Those poor planets. Billions dead. It's not great. So Albedo suggests that the core has this idea for a weapon that can eliminate the ousters without hurting hegemony infrastructure. He calls it a bomb equivalent or like an explosive version of a death wand. Mm-hmm. What's a death wand? Great question. <laughs> What's a death wand, Sam? I'm <laughs> not, not entirely sure, but apparently it's like an energy weapon that kills things by messing with their brain. So it's like not a physical weapon. It will blow up infrastructure, but it it's will kill. It's not an kill. actual wand. That's unfortunate. I think it means like a beam, like it casts a beam out. I don't know. I don't know. Why isn't it just called a death beam, death ray? That is a thing. (laughs) (laughs) 
Maybe there's a reason. Maybe because like you cast it from like the wand is what you hold to cast the death beam. Okay. I don't know, Daniel. I like to imagine them all running around pretending they're wizards throwing death beams. <laughs> anyway. Fun story. So this would be a device that could be tuned to only kill human brains. So like livestock would not be affected based on quote unquote cerebral wavelengths, whatever that means. So who's making this again? The the Technocore has this weapon. Okay. And they're like, cool, but won't that kill all the humans, all our people on those planets, not just the ousters? And he's like, yeah, 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 but we have a plan for that. Because guess what we have access to? These amazing bunkers that nine plants have, these labyrinths that are just so far underground, they're perfect shelters. We could cram everybody into these labyrinths, set off these death wand bombs. This sounds so kill bad. The there, were, uh, there were so many dead bodies in the labyrinth, Sam. <laughs> yeah, I, you and I know that, but Kissing doesn't know that. Don't do it. That's such a bad idea. Yeah. So he's like, don't be This protected. is traumatizing. Why would you tell me this? It's like giving me anxiety. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So he's like, yeah, we can totally we would evacuate all the people to these labyrinths. We'll set off the death wand bombs. It'll kill all the ousters because they're human, so their brains will be fried. And you guys will be more than six kilometers underground, which is what we, we figured out is the depth needed to protect people from Because they've these. been so good about everything up to now. Yeah, yeah. Now, Mina <laughs> is skeptical. However, <laughs> many of her generals are like, hmm, that sounds like a great idea. This is so bad. Yeah, Don't yeah. do it. Yeah. So this is why it was so important to get all that stuff about the labyrinth full of bodies you know, right in the previous oh. part because we want to make sure you understand the implications of this plan. <laughs> I hate this so much. Why are you telling me this story? <laughs> <laughs> it's good, right? It's like good tension. I hate to tell you that I uh, one, of my, one of my favorite series, uh, it's I think six books maybe, but I've only, uh, I've never made it to the end because the second to last <laughs> book has this thing where one of the all the characters are trusting this woman that you realize is like evil she's yeah she's betraying them and i like it gives me so much anxiety that i've never been able to finish the book because i'm just like i'm like she's evil (laughs) like i can't i just can't what book is this if you don't mind me asking what series um it's i don't know the symphony of ages i think is the name of the whole series by elizabeth hayden it's a fantasy series but you can read the first three and it's like mostly complete you know i think she maybe wrote the first three and then decided to continue the series on i really like the characters but i can't i just can't do it maybe it works out danielle you'll never know until you finish it one of the main characters i'm pretty sure might die So, oh no! I know. <laughs> like, I just like there are many reasons why I can't finish the series, but the main one is that just lit- I try, I've tried like four times to finish it, and every time I get to that book, I'm like, I can't do this. Sorry. <laughs> You're gonna love this part of the book, then. Oh boy! No, no I'm not. Anyway. This is what I'm, I'm warning you. You need to be nice to me. <laughs> I can't make no promises. I can only be a vessel through which Hyperion flows. <laughs> Dan Simmons, what are you doing? Yeah, blame Mr. Simmons for writing some great tension. No, I'm sure he'll be like, oh no, I wrote the tension too well. How terrible will be. <laughs> Secondhand tension. <laughs> All right. So after that whole discussion, we cut to the consul, who was fished out of the river by two ex-self-defense force soldiers. These soldiers have basically become brigands. You know, the self-defense force on Hyperion basically, you know, abandoned their posts once the strike started murdering people. That's fair. And they all turned to piracy and brigandry or whatever. Brigadoon! So they've robbed him and tied him up and are planning to kill him. And the consul quickly concocts a story about having gold buried somewhere upriver. He was taking all this gold away from... 
Keat to hide it from the ouster invasion and, and take it safely to keep Kronos. They're on the Benares and the, the androids like turned on them. So they buried the gold and he got lost in the river. But if they don't kill him, he'll take them to the gold. Wait, who's telling who this? The consul is telling the brigands, the ex-SDF soldiers, that he will take them to the gold if they don't kill him, basically. Okay, so he made up this elaborate story about gold. Yeah, the, but I buried gold and I'll take you to it. And he See, this makes truth. the consul more interesting again. He's very interesting. He's about to get real interesting. Which is good because, man, he started so interesting <laughs> and then he was just the worst. <laughs> like, the most boring thing in existence. He was really interesting. His backstory with Siri, real boring. <laughs> so, and what, I'm still not sure what it has to do with anything. I'm not even sure we've brought that back around yet. <laughs> Well, his backstory of Siri is basically what drives him to betray the hegemony and the ousters and do all his actions that were in the interest of destroying the web instead of whatever plans Mina actually asked him to do. Sure. I just, I really, I really didn't care. <laughs> you know what? I can't tell you to care, Neil. I'm just telling you that's where the backstory comes from. But I'm willing for him to be a pirate. So let's go. Well, he's basically he just play piano? We'll get to that. <gasps> Does he play piano against him? Does he play yeah, piano yeah. at, like, a saloon and pretending to be a pirate? <laughs> <laughs> it's like Old West yeah, okay. meet piracy. So this book actually turns into, you, you know the TV show Westworld? This is yes. basically that. <laughs> or the movie Westworld. That's with, what I'm with, hoping for. <laughs> with Yul Brenner, I think. Yeah, that was a, that was a weird movie. <laughs> anyway, what, you'll see how Westworldly Yul Brenner appears in this episode. <laughs> Fabulous. Okay, it's fun. I'm looking forward to this, even if I'm not looking forward to mass murder. <laughs> Well, no one's for the mass murder, Danielle. At least I should hope not. And my beloved labyrinth. Your labyrinths are going to be used for evil, Danielle, I'm afraid. <laughs> so sad. Why are they always used for evil? <laughs> so the point is, the console was spinning this yarn, uh, doing a very good job of you know, thinking quick on his feet to get these two you know, bloodthirsty brigands to drag him up a river, at least to stall until he can hopefully come up with something else that can save his life. Mm-hmm. So the bands agree to keep him alive long enough for the leading to the goal. They start walking up river. After a few hours, a skimmer flies up and stuns all three of them. The consul is hauled on board and starts to recover and discovers that he's been rescued by his friend and the current governor general of Hyperion. Eh? Eh? I don't know who that is. Theo Lane! Of course! I totally <laughs> you have no remember idea who that is. <laughs> no! <laughs> I can barely keep the main character straight, Sam. Danielle. Everybody comes back. Every name that's mentioned will appear again, especially in this section. The only ones I can remember are the ones we made up. <laughs> Which is, you never forget those. Those are, those are like etched into your brain indelibly. It's not helpful when it comes to the story. If Jonathan Treetops was in this book, Danielle, you'd be on cloud nine, but he is not, unfortunately. I probably wouldn't remember him if he was real. <laughs> oh, that's so sad. How could you forget poor Johnny Treetops? Old JT. <laughs> okay, moving on. In his top hat. <laughs> in his, in his treetop hat. <laughs> All right. So they start flying back towards Keats to get to the spaceport. And Theo explained how Gladstone had sent him a message about exactly where to find the console and how to rescue him. And the console, like, I guess her knowledge is beyond anything I could have guessed because she just knows everything, apparently. And they don't know about her connection with Severn. So back to towards Keats, do you mean the place? Keats? The, the city, the capital city of Hyperion of okay. is the city Keats. So making sure. There are a lot of Keats in this, Sam. I, just, I know, I need, Danielle. I need, I need to be as clear as humanly possible while you're talking <laughs> I'm going to tell you this now because it's funny. So 
there are three cities on Hyperion that are mentioned a lot. There's Port Royal, there's Endymion, and there's Keats. Now, see, Endymion is another I said country, but it's basically the same thing. It's a city. Well, no, because the Endymion the book refers to is a person named Endymion. No, why? <laughs> <laughs> is the person that the city's named after, though? No, he is definitely not. No. <laughs> That's even worse. Is he named after the city? Does he have anything maybe, to do with the city? I don't city? remember. <laughs> I don't remember if he's named after the city or if it's just coincidental, but boy, it's really funny. <laughs> I'm going to be really angry if it's just coincidentally the same name as his stupid city. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was a spoiler for Endymion, the third book in the Cantos. That's a little preview for everyone. <laughs> These books are going to like forever live in my brain. They, I, I haven't you know, even you, read them. <laughs> you asked me, like, I've read these three times. How do I not remember them? But remember them also, like, I don't remember them by detail, but I remember them vividly. Like, they, they burn themselves into your brain. You don't remember <laughs> any of the details. It's weird. <laughs> Okay, so they're on their way to Keats, city of... Yes, quick comma, city. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so Theo is basically catching up the console and everything he's missed. He says, Gladstone knows about what's going on, knows about the what's happening with the pilgrims, at least what happened to the console. Theo also says the ousters are hours, maybe minutes away from invading Hyperion, and that the hegemony fleet is basically in chaos around Hyperion. They're not doing very well. And, oh yeah, the web is also being invaded right now by the ousters, which is all quite a bit for <laughs> poor console to take in. I know, can you imagine? He, like, falls off his magic carpet. He, like, is, yep. disappears for, I don't know, a whole section of a book. They find him, and they're like, by the way, <laughs> literally everything has happened. <laughs> and he reflects that you know, he wanted the web to be destroyed. He wanted the hegemony to be destroyed as, you know, revenge for them destroying Maui Covenant and his grandmother's rebellion and all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But he still feels like a pang of guilt about, oh, yeah, billions are going to die. This is not a good thing still. Oh, yeah, billions of people are going to die because I'm not a great person. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, the question is whether he's worse than what's going on now. And anyway, we'll get to all this philosophy is going to be later. Anyway, fortunately, the spaceport... Still secure, but hey, the evacuation that we promised, not happening. That was pretty much a lie. Shocking. So nobody's happy about that. But Theo is at least consoled because he thinks the strike still has no way into the web since there are no forecast portals that have been allowed planet <laughs> side. He is unaware of the space traveling capabilities of the Shrike. <laughs> Shrike can literally do anything. I don't know why anybody would be surprised if he just showed up at dinner one night. I would not be surprised if he had a reservation at Jonathan Treetops this very night. Yeah, he's celebrating, but he's about to win. Could you imagine the power couple that would be Jonathan Treetops and DJ Shrike? <laughs> I mean, I feel like they'd be match made in heaven. <laughs> they would take on the Not web. heaven. <laughs> So the console also has a thought that his betrayal of the ousters where he opened the time tombs was also kind of part of their plan. And since they're the ones that are poised to be the downfall of the web, not the strike, like his thought was, if I release a strike, it'll be the thing that undoes the web. Mm -hmm. But nope, looks like it's going to be the ousters. So maybe they were planning to use him all along to cause this chaos that they could then take advantage of. So it's all about like betrayal and upon betrayal, but who's double crossing whom and who's using whom for what? Like it's all very, you know... Gordian knot of betrayals and intrigue. Everybody's using fighting. everyone else, basically. Uh, yeah. Like, yeah, why basically. would you just, 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 like, just roll the dice? Let's see what happens. Yeah, like everyone's like, he thinks he's trained them, but maybe his betrayal is part of their plan. And like, it's, it's layers of that kind of stuff going on. I'm not going to get into all of it, but it's there. <laughs> maybe annoying in real life. I mean, I can't imagine real spycraft isn't any less annoying. The console insists on getting his ship so he can get back to the time tombs, but Theo tells him that Gladstone actually wants him to go back to the ousters to negotiate with them immediately because, oof, things are going 
real south. Well, why does why was the council somebody who would be able to talk more to the Asters? Because the council used to be the one that they sent as a representative to negotiate with the Asters before. Like they know him, they're not going to kill him. He is like a diplomat they are familiar with. I probably knew that. Okay. Yeah, I mentioned like the whole point of his story was after he after grandmother Sirius rebellion, he joined the Gemini, and after his family was killed on Brescia, he worked for Gladstone. You know, going to the Asters to spy slash be a diplomat and then he betrayed them and betrayed the web and etc etc go back and listen to that episode of i'm not gonna listen to that again sam i'm talking to the audience you're not (laughs) i was like that's happening (laughs) i listened to enough iberian already (laughs) yes he betrayed the ousters i'll get to that later don't worry okay Thanks. So Consul is very much not on board with this plan. He's like, uh, screw Mina, screw all of that. I'm going to go help my friends like I promised they would. These are one people I will portray. The other, the caravan, the people, the- The pilgrims. Pilgrims. Why is he so close to these people? Didn't he betray them earlier? I mean, no, he never betrayed the pilgrims. He just betrayed the- Oh God, there's too much betrayal, Sam. I'm so confused. <laughs> he's, he's betrayed the web and he's betrayed the ousters. But he's totally on board with his like people he met a week ago. He really likes Saul, for instance, and poor baby Rachel. Oh, he God, basically wants to like help her. Saul and baby Rachel. Everybody exactly. loves Saul and baby Rachel. I hope they're evil. That'd be hilarious. <laughs> they're like in league with the strike. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Plot twist. Plot twist. Merlin sickness was I idea. We wanted to do that from the beginning. So as they approach the city, a battle is raging in the sky above Keats. The Ousters have arrived. So, invasion has started. A shoulder-mounted rocket streaks out from the ground, clipping the skimmer. Theo wrestles with the controls to bring the skimmer down in what is clearly going to be a crash landing. Severn comes out of his trance. He was out for ten minutes. Oh. He shows what he saw, and Monsignor Edward is horrified to learn of the Technocore's plan to herd much of humanity into the labyrinth, presumably for slaughter, since they know what Paul Duray saw. Right. So, like, this is bad. We gotta warn Gladstone about this. If only there was a way to communicate. Yeah, well, they have one. It's called sending Severin back to the CEO post-haste through the Pope's door, the barcaster in the Basilica. Well, I sure hope that doesn't go awry. Right? So Severin agrees to go to the CEO to warn her while Duray <laughs> you know, says- there's not like emails or text messages in the future. <laughs> the only thing they have are fat line. I don't think there's a fat line on Patchum, unfortunately. They're wow. quite expensive. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Catline squirts. Yep, they, that's exactly right. And so not all the planets <laughs> have those. The only thing like I remember. <laughs> yes. I think they're, they're basically a military technology or a very expensive like commercial technology. This seems dumb. It seems like it could be easier than this in the future. I don't want to tell you, Danielle, the future is the future they have. I, I, I can't control their future. <laughs> this is like those TV shows where cell phones had just been uh, invented. You know, they were becoming more and more common. But the TV show's like, I refuse to make this plot way too easy to solve. Or more like, I think it's more, you're doing more like those people like, the future, we'll have flying cars <laughs> by the year 2000. They're like, yeah, that didn't work out so well. Like, clearly things are harder than you think they are. All right. Well, they don't have any communication. Got it. So uh, Severin says he's going to go talk to the CEO. DeRay's like, I'll join you. But first, I'm still going to go to God's Grove and talk to the Templars because I really want to know what's going on with Headmasting. Because <laughs> that's more important than all these people dying. He's like, oh, Severin's got this. Mm-hmm. And then they're interrupted by the appearance of... Shrike. No. Junior Shrike. Who is Junior Shrike? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know the plots. <laughs> Rachel? It's the person you bet. <laughs> it's not a made-up character from your head. It's something that actually exists in the book. Uh, they're interrupted by... Keats. Uh, no. Yes. Wait. Real Keats. Brought back from the dead. <laughs> Like, wait, how many the third cybrid. Uh, gotcha. Johnny Tree Dubs. <laughs> no, it's Lay Hunt. Oh, no, when I got there. Yeah, I think you would. But I want to see you try. 
Lehan to have showed up to retrieve Severin on Mina's orders. Mm-hmm. That's his, her assistant or whatever, right? Yeah, that's her, like, number one aide. Mm-hmm. And Severin's like, we gotta go back to Mina right now. We gotta tell her to not go with, through with the Technocores plan. It's terrible. And Hunt's like, wow, is there anything you don't know about what's going on in our private war room, Severin? Because clearly you have some knowledge of everything that's going on. Well, him and Mina, man. Yeah, no, they Power somehow <laughs> they would be an they would be an amazing Jeopardy team. <laughs> they quickly depart. First, Deray goes through the Pope's door. Then Severin and Hunt. However, when they step through, Severin and Hunt are not in the government house Terminex. What? Like they they don't make it there? I'm just I I'm know. so surprised. Instead, How is this happening? Yeah, well, instead they find themselves on an entirely different planet, and the portals snap shut before they can escape. Oh, I'm just I'm shocked, Sam. I know. Shocked. So they're in a pastoral landscape. And notable to Severin, the presence of the data sphere seems to be gone. Uh oh. They are beyond the reach of the web. However, Severin still feels the low hum presence of the megasphere, so they're not beyond the bounds of the techno core. Of course not. There are a lot of spheres in this book, Daniel. I'm not sure what they all do. <laughs> I'm not going to remember any of these. It's fine. That's fine. Hunt is freaking out all, we have to go back. How could the Farcaster malfunction? And Severin's like, it probably didn't malfunction. <laughs> I think that we were brought here deliberately and that they basically they've been kidnapped by the Technocore because it clicked with Hunt now that who controls all the Farcaster portals in the web? That's right. It, the core, Danielle. <laughs> you knew the I know, answer I was the core. <laughs> I just like to assume the shark is somehow everywhere all at once. <laughs> it doesn't need Farcaster portals, Daniel. It can get wherever it wants to get by itself. It, just, it can wink and know. Yeah. And so the implications of the core being able to redirect any travel anywhere just sort of finally click into, into his brain. Uh, this is kind of like if we gave total control of all our transportation. Literally the dumbest thing in the entire world. I can't believe, I I can believe that humans are this stupid. I'm just like, well, think about it this way. Imagine if like elevators, which you never, you never think twice about stepping into an elevator, right? Eh, well, sort of, but okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You have an elevator, you push the button. Like, no one's like thinking, oh my gosh, what if the elevator gets the mind of its own and starts to like move you to the wrong floor? Like, this is if suddenly elevators gained sentience and started betraying you. <laughs> to be honest, I wouldn't be that surprised. I mean, it'd be a little alarming, but I'd be like, oh, this figures. <laughs> Saw this coming. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure you did. <laughs> What I think is really funny is that this is also equivalent to us giving all of our transportation over to some AI. Like if you had smart cars or smart planes that you know, flew themselves and drove themselves and people didn't have to worry about it, which is definitely not a direction we're headed at right. all. So, you know, I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibility given our, our current trends. I did say I was not surprised that humans were that stupid. <laughs> yeah. So like this is – so the kind of idea is this thing has been so ubiquitous for centuries. That's just sort of like a part of it. People don't think twice about it. It's like oh, – Opening a door with a key or using an elevator or using one of those automatic doors in grocery stores. Mm-hmm. No one really thinks that hard about it. Unless they shut on you, which has happened to me. Sure. But imagine that they never malfunctioned, as they had never malfunctioned before, in this case, until now. Anyway, Severin guesses that they're on Earth. Old Earth, or possibly, or more likely, the core recreation of it that has been in the Hercules cluster, which we learned about earlier during Bron Lamia's story. Hercules! No, uh, not at all. <laughs> yes, exactly what you just said, Sam. <laughs> no, it's the cluster, not the person. <laughs> is it named after the person or is it named after Jonathan Hercules? <laughs> it's named after Johnny Hercules, who's a cousin of Johnny Keats, who knew this. <laughs> and Johnny Treetops, they're like, triad yeah. of Johnnies, see? All three, the Johnnies, everything see, comes yeah, in threes. <laughs> yeah, uh, you made up the Johnnies, Daddy. You should have the Johnny train going. <laughs> 
all aboard the Johnny train. <laughs> that sounds like a Trojan commercial. <laughs> <laughs> okay, moving on. So Hunt is desperate to get back to Gladstone. He's like freaking out. But Severin is like, there's no way we're going to leave until the Technocore wants us out of here. Like we're trapped here for the foreseeable future. Yeah, you're never going to out there. Frantic to do something, anything, Hunt sets off walking down the road with Severin following him. There's going to be a murder labyrinth, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> Cut to Kassad, screaming as he attacks the Shrike in single combat. Oh yeah, Kassad. Kassad, he's the thing. <laughs> Is Amorita Mineta with him? I mean, not at the moment. She's there. She's not fighting with him. So all the other Shrikes that had been scattered around all seem to coalesce into a single Shrike before him. They just exchange- a normal- Wait, whoa, wait, whoa, whoa. Is it normal size Shrike? Does yeah, it get bigger than a ridiculous- like yeah, multiple it, Shrikes? Is it like no, 50 just Shrikes one Shrike, tall? Danielle. It's just like, you know, all those images seem to sort of resolve, like come into focus as one Shrike. So he was just having some like vision issues. Maybe. Or maybe it was like a time <laughs> distortion. I don't know, Danielle. It's very unclear. Sure. I didn't really think there were multiple strikes necessarily. I mean, there very well could th- have been. I just kind of figured they were like all from different timelines, all within like 10 seconds of each other or something. So there are just millions of strikes. Could have been possibility. I don't know. It could have been just a million strikes and they said, yeah, let this one dude handle it. He's fine. <laughs> I do not know. Well, the strike population that they pull from. So they exchange blows. Strike the planet. strike is not disappearing and reappearing as it normally does. But moving in a more conventional way. Kassad lands a few hits, which don't really seem to affect the Shrike that much, but at least he's making contact. The Shrike also manages to take a good few chunks, a few slashes into Kassad, despite his silvery skin suit. Oh yeah, magic suit. At one point, Kassad actually manages to knock the Shrike down, but while down, the Shrike severs Kassad's Achilles tendon. Uh-oh. Yeah, so as it's about to kill him, Onita steps in to attack, grabbing the Shrike and pulling it back enough for Kassad to get free, and the two of them retreat. They don't, like, hit the Strike while he's down? No, the strike got back up after he sliced the Achilles tendon. But then Monita Moneta managed to pull him away, so you think that, like, well, they might see pull if they him get the- off of Kassad. It's not like she had him down. He's, like, briefly distracted for a half a second so that Kassad could escape. Okay. Who still has a severed Achilles tendon, unless we forget. No, I didn't forget. So she urges Kassad to kill it, and he's all like, I'm trying. <laughs> Try harder. <laughs> right, which is the least helpful encouragement. You have literally one job on this ship. <laughs> To kill the strike, we know. Kassad becomes aware of a wave of noise. Guess what this noise is, Danielle? It's strikes. They're farting. No. Nope. Time farts? Nope. You're on a weird wavelength tonight, Danielle. <laughs> is, is it Rachel crying? No. It is cheering from all those impaled on the Tree of Thorns, urging oh, him th- on. That's an obvious solution. I should have seen that coming. <laughs> Literally anything goes in this novel, and then you're surprised when I say something random. Oh, I'm not surprised you say something random. I'm just surprised you go straight to farts. <laughs> I thought it was funny. Uh, <laughs> you and our 13 year old listeners. Was, I didn't think it was literally strike farts. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's a really hard to strike farts. It's kind of hard to say. Great. You find a new tongue twister, Danielle. The world is thankful. <laughs> All right. So the tree of pain is not. As much pain as usual. Well, I mean, they're all like, hey, yeah, kick that Shrike's butt. We're on your side, dude. Because obviously, like, you put us on here. We want him dead. Are they going to start doing Keats poetry again? Maybe. Are they going to, like, start cheering or quoting it, like, louder and louder? <laughs> it was, like, thumping. It's going to become, like, a, a scene out of a movie. It's like, we will rock you played on the tree of thorns. <laughs> kind of like a we will rock you scene or, like, the, uh, what we is the We will Grecian urn. <laughs> the one where they all stand up on top of their desks and 
Oh, Captain, my captain it. Is that Dead Poet Society? There you go. Like, yeah, I don't okay. know, something where they all come together and they shout poetry loudly. <laughs> that was Robin Williams, wasn't it? Yes, it was. <laughs> okay, no. The Shrike then appears near Kassad, he yells a battle cry again and goes to attack. Cut to Paul DeRay, stepping out of the far caster on to God's Grove. He's led up to the top of the tree to a table, where the true voice of the world tree, Sek Haridin, and the Bishop of the Shrike Church are seated. And Jonathan Treetops. Nope, he is not there. He is probably at his restaurant. <laughs> Boo. <laughs> but they're on top of a tree, Sam. He's just like, he's like the Jonathan Monopoly Treetops man. is on the top of every tree. <laughs> he's not like some weird sprite that exists at the top of every tree. You don't know he's that. He's a man you know with a business. <laughs> He's a dedicated businessman, Danielle. Let him be that. <laughs> I'm just seeing how many episodes I can possibly insert down in the tree tops into. <laughs> I mean, you can probably shoot him anywhere you want, Danielle. It doesn't make it relevant. It's going to be like three books later, and I'd be like, Jonathan Treetops. <laughs> <laughs> so the two other church leaders welcome DeRay, who joins them. He's surprised they know who he is, but after all, it was the Shrike Church who chose the pilgrims, so the bishop's like, we, we kind of have a, a, a pulse. We got a finger on the pulse of who all the pilgrims are and what their stories are. Also, tree ships. Yes, those were things from book one. That's what they're just, aren't they going to tell him about the tree ship? The magic tree of pain ship? Oh, well, yeah, we'll get to that. Don't <laughs> worry. The bishop explains that all the riots he's been inciting are the first death throes of a society that needs to die. <laughs> DeRay asks what it is that unites the Shrike Church and the Temple. Like, why are you guys working together? What's your common cause? And they explain that the prophecies of the Shrike Church overlap with the Templar teachings of Muir about what punishment would befall humankind for destroying its own world and then also spreading out into the galaxy and exterminating all those other forms of alien life that had any even potential for intelligence and on the other worlds they colonized. So the fact that the Shrike is like having absolutely nothing to do with the Shrike Church doesn't seem to concern them? No, the Shrike is part of the atonement. It's like part of the punishment that humankind will face mm -hmm. for its sins. Mm -hmm. So... That is what the Shrike represents. And so humankind is doomed, but with this downfall will come a rebirth, like the growth after a forest fire. So they're on the side of the AIs. No, they're on the side of, we'll get to it. They're not on the side of the AI. They're on the side of destroying the hegemony to give humanity uh, a fresh start. Sure, except that the Shrike is sent by the AIs, right? Future well, maybe that's what Uman said. These guys aren't. So I mean, assuming Uman is correct and not lying yeah, through his teeth, but or the something. bishop doesn't know that. He thinks this Reich is a avenging avatar, and right. it's not. It's not his common knowledge. I know. So they're not on the AI side. They may be duped into believing. That's kind AI. of what I meant. Is that they okay. like they're fighting the AI's battle, even though they don't realize they're necessarily doing it. Maybe possibly. So Duray questions how they know the prophecies, which were spoken directly into their minds, are true, and not some orchestrated fakes maybe produced by the Technocore, <laughs> which has access to their brains through all the implants they have, or literally anything else. <laughs> well, I mean, he's like. Hey, you, know, you have all these prophecies. How do you know it wasn't just, you know, you have an implant in your brain that could be used to be suggestive and manipulate you? How do you know it wasn't that? Or oh, maybe it's all orchestrated by the AI UI and the Shrike is not there to help humanity atone but to wipe it out. So he's basically making all the suggestions that you were trying to assert earlier. <laughs> wouldn't it be funny, though, if you were the Technicore just to, like, make new religions constantly by whispering into their little, like, brain things? <laughs> I mean, I sure get old after a while, after the 50th new religion. I don't know, it'd be pretty funny. This there's, is why you're you not know, trying to do anything. There's some prankster in the AI community who just thinks it's a riot and just keeps doing it over and over. Mm, okay, well, let's just pretend that's a thing. <laughs> it is a thing, Sam. What's the name of this prankster in the Technocore? I don't know, what are their names like? Have we have we met any of names? Uman. 
I, I don't know, Sam. <laughs> okay, great. Not Johnny Technocore? <laughs> I mean, maybe. <laughs> the default. Anyway, the bishop demands to know where he heard such heresy, and DeRay says it's from the other pilgrims who have access to the core among others who have told him similar stories. And the bishop's all like, yeah, no, nah, I don't believe you. It's all nonsense. It's definitely <laughs> not the Technocore playing my strings. <laughs> we definitely believe in our religion, and we're not going to listen to anything that goes against it. That's how religions work, Danielle. <laughs> I know. I was completely on his side for that. That's exactly how that would, conversation would go down, unsurprised. Yep. Teray then informs them that Hetmastine is dead, which, of course, they already know, and then <laughs> asks what Hetmastine's purpose was on the pilgrimage. Tree ship! <laughs> Set Cardini explains about their prophecies that have then destroyed a tree ship over Hyperion to have reborn as a tree of atonement, which Hetmastine was to have piloted. So, is you know, this important? Fun. Does, like, actually matter that this was his goal, or are they just, like, they just really like to talk about it? I have no idea, Danielle. I haven't finished <laughs> the book yet. Because <laughs> I just feel like it's come up a couple of times, but we didn't actually get to hear the story, even though it's obviously the most interesting story. And it'd be this funny is, if it that's just... That's the extent of the story. There's no I know, but it's such, a good, it's such a good, like, weird little thing, and I feel like it'd be hilarious if it just really didn't matter at all. <laughs> That would be fun. Like Hetmastine's entire existence was irrelevant. I mean, it might just be the whole story doesn't matter at all. Who knows? That's what I mean. Yeah, and that very well could be true. DeRay tells them how Hetmastine was taken by the strike, perhaps to the Tree of Thorns, but he was either not able or not willing to captain it, and so fled back to the Time <laughs> Valley and died. He couldn't figure out how to get inside and take it off in space. <laughs> He's like, where's the door? <laughs> no. Sec Harding does not believe that Mastin would have abandoned his duty like that. But regardless, he's dead, so it doesn't matter. Really does The bishop then asks about the mother of salvation, one Braun Lamia. Ooh, the mother of salvation. Because she is pregnant. Yeah, I knew, I knew. With the baby And just saying, making sure that's come back up again, because it's been a while since we mentioned it. No, I didn't forget that Braun was pregnant with a child that nobody cares about, including Braun. I know that you didn't forget, but you're not the only person listening to this, hopefully. <laughs> Listeners, Braun is pregnant with another baby Keith. I already covered it, Danielle. That's why I did. It only turned into a big thing. <laughs> And DeRay reveals only that she's alive, if apparently brain dead, and hooked up to a cable that seems to be connected to the Shrine Loop also. So he doesn't tell them the whole story about Uman that he heard. Probably The bishop yeah. is pleased by this, as he says it's according to prophecy. Oh good, she's just a womb. We appreciate this. Yeah, no, again, <laughs> these people are not good people. <sighs> Women in the story get the short stick. I mean... They usually the short stick in most, you know, historical stories, Danielle. I know. <laughs> the bishop then takes his leave, and after a few more words, DeRay announces that, yeah, you know what, I should get back to Mina Gladstone. I got some important work there as well. However, when he turns to go, he finds that he's essentially been trapped on the balcony with no way to leave. Uh-oh. Sek Hardy insists on keeping DeRay there to see if the prophecies of the destruction of God's Grove and the rest of the hegemony will come to pass, and that they believe soon the strike will be loosed on the web and, quote, we are better off here, where the end will be swift and painless. So, what, why is that his decision as to whether or not Dre gets to stay there or wants to go? Well, that's a great question, and we won't answer it right now. <laughs> I don't understand why he's in charge of that decision at all. Instead, we cut to Severn and Hunt, wandering along the road, when they come to an inn with food set out for them. Still no people, though. Not a single other person. Mysterious. Hunt is freaking out, but Severn is just grimly amused by all of this. Oh, what else are you going to be? Right. Hunt is also struggling being cut off from the data sphere, where usually people 
have instant connection to any other person or instant access to any information. And now he's suddenly finding himself deprived of that by being away from the data sphere. Oh no, he left his cell phone at home. It's going to be such a hard day. What's he going to do when he poops, Danielle? What's he going to do? I don't know. I mean, I, it's hard. It, I miss my phone when I'm pooping. <laughs> That's so sad. <laughs> Can't carry it everywhere I go. Severin explains how he's been here before in his past life, or at least he remembers being here from the memories he received from Keats. They're in Italy, heading towards Rome. Okay. Isn't that where he died? Yeah. Oh, that's unfortunate. Seems metaf- seems like a parallel. <laughs> that night, Severin awakes to a coughing fit, blood spattering his hands as he coughs. Oh no, he's Keatsing it. He is. The consumption <laughs> has him, just like Keats. <laughs> Why is his death funny? It's not funny. It's just like it's weird obsession with Keats. It's Keats all the way down, Danielle. And then instant consumption. It's like, well, unfortunately for you, you've hit Italy, so it's the end of the road, Severn. <laughs> Hunt, who has never seen disease before, much less tuberculosis, in the clean world of the web, is completely freaked out. <laughs> You're dying, man. You're dying. Game over. No, I mean, that's what Severin says. Hunt is like, what's going on? I have no idea what this is. <laughs> Severin states that this is all probably for verisimilitude to Keats's life. <laughs> Bummer. The next morning, a small carriage with two horses is waiting for them. They get in and the horses trundle off. What is the point of this? I mean, is there a point? Can you tell me? I don't know. I'm man. good to I just, Danielle. <laughs> I'm just telling you the story. I, I was just tell curious, like, knowing, intent. knowing how this part goes, this section of book, I was just curious if there was a point to this section that you had gleaned thus far reading. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> You'll have to find out with everyone else. Danielle. I was just hoping you'd say yes or no and we could move on. Sorry for nope. asking. <laughs> I, I, I can't give away anything like that. All right. Well, carry on. So they get in, uh, And Hunt is shocked because horses have been extinct <laughs> for a while. <laughs> oh. Meanwhile, Gladstone isn't happy that neither Hunt nor Severn has appeared. Her second assistant, Sedeptra Akasi, tells her they went through the portal in Patcham, but did not emerge. So Gladstone demands to speak to Albedo after the war meeting to figure out what the heck happened to them. (laughs) She's like, hmm, something I don't know. I don't like this. (laughs) I mean, she has an idea of what happened. She's not an idiot. So they gather in the war room to watch the invasion of Heaven's Gate. The first planet to be invaded. Oh, poor Heaven's Gate. They have been broadcasting that Heaven's Gate is an open, non-combative world as the Ausra fleet approached. As the Ausra is engaged, the nominal torch ships left behind to guard the Farcast Singularity Sphere, they blow it up, severing Heaven's Gate's connection to the web. They still have a single fat line transmission connection, so they can still see what's happening, but it's effectively cut off from the web. So are they out there fighting the Ausras right now, or is it just their attacking planets? Yeah, the Ausras are just attacking planets. Just because we don't know okay. they're invading they're invading planets that they're okay. invading it's an invasion no i just wasn't sure if there was still like combative war actually going on or if they completely dropped back at this point well these are the first world worlds that they had planned to leave just nominal forces behind and pull everyone back for the regroup to do the strike at you know empty space for mm-hmm. the second wave worlds 
Okay. So right now, these plants are not putting up a resistance. Their plan is to hopefully be passive and survive. Okay. They still have fat lines, so they still have visual transmission of what's going on. And as the ouster ships enter orbit, suddenly they let a bombardment, raining nuclear bombs and death beams from the sky, obliterating the planet. Well, that was one way to do it. Before too long, the fat line transmitter is destroyed and the feed goes dark. Poor Heaven's Gate. Completely wiped out. One of the other senators breathlessly asks, now that negotiation is clearly off the table, what do they do next? That's a great question. Real good question. Back to the consul, who is dragging Theo's body out of the wreck skimmer. He's alive, but injured. He doesn't. I, I was really hoping he was going to get to pirate a little bit more. Does he get to continue to pirate at any point? What, what would he do as a pirate, Danielle? I'm curious. I don't know. I don't know him well enough, other than play tunes. Maybe have like a hook hand. <laughs> <laughs> this doesn't turn to Treasure Island Hyperion style. <laughs> or kind of like what, the Rapunzel movie, where they're like all in the bar. It's the one that plays the piano. <laughs> Tangled? No, no, not ringing any bells. Your only touchstones right now references other media, apparently. <laughs> this is how I'm going to remember it, Sam. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> They're in Jacktown, and they managed to get to Cicero's bar. Remember Cicero's? Yes. Is he going to play piano there? No. Uh, which this is currently is burning. Very it's burning, Danielle. It's burned to the ground. Let me finish the sentence. I'll tell you why. They can't play piano there. It's being burned to the ground. All right. It's a good time to play piano, though. No, it's absolutely not. <laughs> It's been attended to by a bucket brigade. Stan Lueski is devastated. Yeah, poor Stan. They try to get help from Stan, but he has no skimmer for them. And then a voice behind them says, he can help. Guess who it is? Um, Johnny Keats, reincarnated. No. Nope. The Shrike. <laughs> yes, the Shrike. No. Uh, uh, what yeah. characters do you know of that have not been brought up in a while? <laughs> Is it one of the main characters, just one of the weird side characters? Is it uh, the boyfriend of, what's her face? Rachel's ding, ding, ding. It's Emilio Arundes. Yeah, I, got, I actually got one, you guys. With a lot of help, you did. I'm a winner. That's like my third guess. That's pretty good. <laughs> well done, I me. told you, every character that's named comes back from Stan Lueski to Emilio Arundes. I'm super proud of myself. You can't take that away from me. <laughs> I'm not trying to. He has a skimmer and will take them to the console shift to help Rachel. <laughs> Dead Rachel? She's not dead yet. There's still again. This is her back in time. Oh, that's right. She's yeah. still like a day old or something. No, like a few hours old. <laughs> okay, yeah. So they race towards the spaceport and observe that the Alistars don't seem to want to destroy the city, which they could have done from orbit, but instead are landing paratroopers and dropships outside the city to subdue it. Okay, so they destroyed one planet, but this one they're being nicer to. Which is an interesting thing, isn't it? <laughs> Why they're doing this plan and not the others. Who knows? Maybe Hyperion's special, Danielle. Would Hyperion be special? Who could say? I don't know. I said that earlier when Mina gave it up, but nobody cared. <laughs> <laughs> they managed to talk their way into the spaceport and onto the console ship, where they put Theo into the surgery to heal. And then Arundes identifies the ship as, like, amazing and beautiful. It's like the only private ship he's ever been on. There are only a few private ships in, in, the, in the web. This is the console's ship? Yep, the console ship. Okay. The console then orders the ship to go to the time tombs because it's entirely voice controlled. There are no interfaces. Is he going to play piano on a ship? The ship then tells him it first is required to play a recorded message from Gladstone to him. Boo. Gladstone appears in the hollow pit and tells him that she understands he wants to return to the time tombs, but she's asking him instead to go to the Alistair Swarm and Hyperion and negotiate a ceasefire. She shares images of the destruction of Heaven's Gate, telling him that this is their only chance to end the bloodshed and save billions of lives. Mm -hmm. The Consul is resistant to this idea. 
Go figure. I know. But Melio tells him that really this is what they have to do. Even as much as they both want to help Rachel, they know the ship's medical facilities won't work. They tried stasis before in the web when they tried to heal Rachel and it did not work. Mm -hmm. So it's really just a fool's errand. And this could actually help save lives if they go talk to the ousters. Or not. They might just well, die. Is he going to play piano for them? Danielle, what's with you and the piano? Let <laughs> it go. It was the most interesting thing about him, okay? Prior to me being briefly a pirate. <laughs> the console relents and takes off, heading for the swarm. Back with Severn and Hunt, they trundle on through a swampy wasteland Severn recognizes from Keats' memories. Soon enough, they enter Rome and move through the deserted streets to the same boarding house where the original Keats died. Oh, well, so he goes in? Yeah. <laughs> He's like, huh, I guess. <laughs> He's, again, Severin is pretty much amused by this. Uh, Severin is convinced that the core wants him to die, to play out the final days of Keats' life as the original did. Mm -hmm. Cut to Saul, waiting at the entrance of the Sphinx, as the time tombs open, glowing like a rave. The Shrike does not return with Rachel. You rave. Does it really say that in the book? No, of course not. <laughs> I don't know. What part of this book did you think that Dan Sims used the word rave? I don't know. You used it like it was part of the book. I was just curious if DJ Shrike was in the house. That's my homage to DJ Shrike. Every time the time dooms glow, it's rave time. Boots and bits and boots and bits and boots and bits and boots and bits. Yeah, that's it? That's all you can get me? Boots and bits. Okay, perfect. We're not doing the Danielle beatbox <laughs> ASMR hour. Thank you very much. I only much. know the one thing. I'm going to have to learn some more. I'm going to have to YouTube some videos here. You don't learn a second trick, Danielle. You're a one trick pony. <laughs> <laughs> it's not my skill. I have others. So down the valley, Saul sees a figure, a young woman emerge from the jade tomb. Is it what's her face? Thinking it's Rachel, he rushes towards it. Definitely not Rachel. When he reaches her, she collapses into his arms. But of course it's not Rachel. It's Braun, back from the datum plane. Yeah, it is. That's because... Braun, he goes to Braun and then dies, so that makes sense. What? In his real life. Keats does, but Keats is not part of this. Well, no, Keats doesn't go to Braun. What are you talking about? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> so Braun's back from the datum plane. Yes. And why Why is this? I don't understand what you're, who's going to whom and dying here in real life. Who is, who are we talking about? Are we with the console? With Saul. With Saul. Okay, sorry, that was confusing. I missed that part. That <laughs> yeah, was very clear. <laughs> you probably were. I, I don't want to walk you. No. Console, not involved in any of this. Okay. Console, no one near the time tombs. He's sorry, in the ship had, heading towards the Esther's. We haven't even gotten to, like, this is the first time we've mentioned Saul in a while that was, like, yeah. where he was in it, so I forgot. I didn't realize. Sorry. And that's the last we're going to talk about Saul in this part anyway, so moving on. <laughs> <laughs> Cut to Mina entering a war room at the Olympus Mons battle school to watch the invasion of god's grove much as before she asks after severin and hunt of which there is still no word the core reports that their absence is a farcaster malfunction but given that no farcaster has ever malfunctioned before mina does not buy this <laughs> she thinks the core isn't even trying to hide their intentions about betraying humanity since they believe things are in motion now that no one can derail like they're like it's too late they get nothing about it let's not even pretend to be sneaky they're that's super correct yeah exactly Cut to Sek Harding and DeRay. Harding says the moment is approaching. He requested that the hegemony not offer any resistance so they can be considered non-belligerent, hopefully. So what, they'll die more peacefully? What was the plan? So that they won't be killed. Like, they don't know what happened to God's, oh, to Heaven's Gate. They don't, don't know they that they want to die? 
Let me get to it. So DeRay <laughs> asks why he welcomes this war, and Harding says he doesn't, but they know it's necessary for the great change to move humanity to its natural order in the universe. Instead of a cancer, moving from planet to planet, wiping out all other life there. Duray insists there has to be a better way than this terrible war, and Harding says, because this isn't just human injustices, but rather a result of the terrible symbiosis of the humans and the evil Technocore, there is no other way. This is an evolutionary dead end for humanity, their, their reliance with the Technocore. So the Hegem must be destroyed to free humanity from the Technocore since they're inextricably linked. He tells Duray he's sure the, sh- the Shrike won't wipe out humanity. It's just a catalyst, a warning for change. Okay. He's like yeah. death so, now. <laughs> he's like, everybody get ready. This is going to be a bad one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the Templar and the, at least the Templar philosophy, and probably shared partly by the Church of the Shrike, is that the real villains are not the ousters. It's the Technocore that is stunting humanity, preventing it from evolving and moving forward and, you know, using like a parasite and they have to get rid of the Technocore. And the only way to do that is to get rid of the Hegemony because Hegemony and the Technocore are linked in a way that is inseparable. Can't there be multiple bad guys? Why is it that sure. we always think there's only one? Oh, I'm not saying there's only one. Humans and the Hegemony aren't great either. Let's be honest. Like this is their sin for wiping out all these species. Right. But the only way to get humanity back on the right path is to get them free of the Technocore, which does not have humanity's best interests in heart. It has its own interests in heart. And the Ousters are just, like, being pulled in? Well, the Ousters are also against the Technocore. Mm-hmm. So, Sek Harding says they have an understanding with the Ousters, who only seek to control Hyperion and the strike long enough to strike at the Technocore, not destroy the web, a surgical procedure to free humanity. And DeRay points out that no one knows where the Technocore is physically, but Harding brushes that aside. As well as DeRay's question <laughs> is that. Not important, if- other than it being important. <laughs> right. And he's like, the, 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 the Ousters will figure it out. They have a plan. Okay, so they have like a little. A literal agreement with the ousters. An understanding, he says. I don't know if they have, okay. like... It, okay, okay. Rid- they, like, actually talk about it? Or is this, like, an understanding where Hetmastim thought he was going to, like, drive the Tree of Pain out into space, and then the strike was like, <laughs> what? I don't no. know. The only word I get is understanding. <laughs> okay, well, I think I would I would assume that they also thought they had an understanding about the ship. <laughs> I assume there are some back-channel communications between the ousters and these various cults, factions, whatever you want to call them. I'd like to assume that they just, I don't know, just think that the ousters are on their side and that's their understanding. I believe, I, I'm sure there have been some communication of some kind. Okay. Thank you. I have no proof of this. I like it as a word understanding, but I believe that is more likely the case than not. Perfect. Just wanted to be anyway, clear on what understanding meant in this context. No, you don't. You never seem to care about understanding before in all these details. <laughs> You're like, move past them. I don't care. <laughs> This seems important, Sam. We're like getting to the actual crux of this stupidly long story. <laughs> So the plan is that the Aus will take control of Hyperion and the Shrike long enough to use it to destroy the core, free humanity, and it's fine. They'll figure it out. Dorea asks if the attack on God's Grove was also part of the plan, like if this current invasion was part of it. And Hardin insists that they won't attack God's Grove. They'll, they're just there sort of like as a, a show of force. And he kept Dorea here to observe that, that they won't be attacked, and to carry the information back to Gladstone so they could all focus on the real enemy, the Technocore, instead of worrying about the ousters. Okay, but why did they destroy that one Heaven's Gate? They don't know about that, Daddy. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot. It's confusing Remember, not who knows all the what. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, it's like clear when you're reading something than when somebody's detailing you all the stories. So. Yeah, no, it's, 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 it, I'm not sure it's clear when you're reading this either. This is a very complicated <laughs> book. 
So just as he says that, the bombs begin to fall. Uh-oh. Oh, no, he's wrong. Shocking. Followed by the energy beams of death. Harding is aghast and cries, the ouster brethren promised. So I guess they'd have communication. <laughs> they promised. They lied to us. I can't believe it. He then springs into action, grabbing Duray and pulling him towards the now accessible Farcaster portal. Harding shoves him through just as a tsunami of fire rolls towards him, engulfing the world tree. Duray falls to the other side, burned but alive, and quickly passes out. Poor Duray. Glasner and the others are watching the destruction of God's growth with horror, and they blow the singularity, cutting it off from the web. Mina checks in that Admiral Lee, her friend Admiral, with their plan to take the fight to the ouster at the edge of Mare Infinitus system, if he's ready. And he's like, yes, my task force is ready, we're going to take him and fight him well outside the range of the planet in the Oort Cloud, basically. Mm-hmm. She's then informed that Duray has just appeared in the government house Terminex, come through from God's Grove, and that he's been taken to the infirmary. Ooh. Mina plans to see him after her meeting with Albedo in a few minutes. In her office, Akasi says that the political situation is chaos. They have maybe three days at most before there's a vote of no confidence against her because somebody has to pay for everything that's going on and, you know, she's the person in charge, so they're going to blame her. Yeah, and it definitely wasn't any of the generals. <laughs> exactly. Well, again, <laughs> who are you going to blame? The person at the top. I know, that's unfortunate, when she was actually in the right. Yeah, well, you know, sometimes it's warranted, sometimes it's not. I'm not saying I like her, or trust her. Trust no one in this book, Danielle. Of course not, except Shrike. No. (laughs) (laughs) The only thing you can trust a Shrike to do, Danielle, is drop sick beats. And be awesome. And be awesome, sure. So Mina starts her meeting with Albedo, and the first thing she does is demand to know the location of the Technocore physically. <laughs> Albedo demurs, saying she knows it's their policy to not reveal that location of any physical parts of the core, and it's also nowhere in the sense that they exist within and even beyond the web. Okay. Mina cuts them off, saying that many are accusing the core of deliberately betraying humanity since their predictions failed to help them in any way with this war. They didn't predict the Auster invasions, they didn't predict the destruction of all the planets, etc., etc., Gosh, that's crazy. Albedo is unimpressed and only says that that's a regrettable mistake, but he did warn them that the Hyperion variable and bring Hyperion into the web would make this war unpredictable. Didn't they also tell, not buy that. tell them that it was like a 99.9% probability of it going one direction or another? That was a different thing. <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> I mean, that was way back. I mean, they did have that thing. They, then they admitted that the Hyperion variable may screw them over. I don't know, Danielle. They're clearly BSing, so it doesn't matter. It really doesn't. And Mina knows they're BSing, he knows they're BSing, he knows she knows they're BSing. Everyone's just like dropping the facades, basically. Mina then demands to speak to someone in the core with actual authority. One of the, quote, the powers, as they're called, and dismisses Albedo. Good for her. Mina far casts to the infirmary, with only a slight thought about how the core really does hold the life of every citizen that travels by Farcaster, which is most of them in their hands, but she just like, screw it and goes through anyway. <laughs> that was brave. Yeah, she's very much like, to hell with it and goes in. Back in Rome, Severin is coughing up blood in Keats' old room. <laughs> Poor Severin. He's just playing I along. want to be clear about something. I am cutting out a lot, <laughs> a lot of the pages and pages of description of him suffering his thoughts and stuff. I don't know if it's important or not, but I'm just trying to get you the base of what's happening here because there is a lot of time we spend with Keats or Severin dying in Rome, so... Is he... Like, why is he going along with this? What choice does he have? I don't know. He could go to a different house, would it throw anything off? Like, does he even try? I think he's just, like, macabrely interested in, in seeing how this goes and playing it through. Okay, sure. He eventually falls asleep and dreams, not of his normal dreams, but of floating in the datum plane, but up and out to something larger, what he calls the Metasphere. Ooh. <laughs> Encompassing the digital and the physical experiences he's had. It's a whole new world out there. It's a Metasphere, Danielle. 
It's amazing how many dumb ideas from the present are are alluded to in this book. (laughs) He sees something out there in the haze that surrounds the metasphere approaching him. He knows it holds his life and his death in its hands, and he's tempted to call out to it to hurry it on its way. But he's then woken by Hunt, who heard him crying out in his sleep. Is it the UI? You? I don't know, Danielle. Could be. Could be just a dream. Who knows? Could be that I don't feel like it's just a dream. Dreams aren't just dreams. <laughs> <laughs> in any book we've ever read. <laughs> Hunt then asks Severin to tell him of Keats's life, which he does. Tells him the whole story of Keats's life. I will not retell it here again. <laughs> He then includes how he's dreaming of events that are happening around the web. And Lay Hunt's like, oh, so that's how you know everything. And then he asks, hey, if you can dream all these events, can you communicate to the others through these dreams? Severin dismisses that idea. since what? he insists Why? he's not <laughs> Since he insists he's not present in the dreams, he's not like there physically. He has no presence there. He can't speak. He has no voice. He's just like seeing them as if you were watching a video feed. Has he even tried? But Hunt points out that he knows what people are thinking. Like he knows their thoughts. Again, everything in this book that I'm telling you is something that Severin has dreamed of. The entire book is just him dreaming. Everything that's happened is something he's dreamed. Right. (laughs) So he's in their heads. Maybe he can talk to them in some psychic way or whatever from inside their minds. Severin is like, I don't really care. Even if I could do that, like, what good would it do to warn them? It's too late. Things are in motion and moving too fast to have any impact on it. Let's just give up. I'm dying of consumption. What do I care? He's very fatalistic at this point. <laughs> Way to be a Keats. Hunt then insists if he's a retrieval persona of a poet, why don't you tell me a poem? Because he's that kind of guy. Oh, you're no. a poet? Tell me a poem right now. <laughs> poem for me, monkey dance. I think Simmons just likes throwing as much Keats poetry as possible. That's almost 100% true. <laughs> he's like, how can I work this into this scene? Severin relents and Hunt is unimpressed with the poem. <laughs> and then they go back to sleep. <laughs> That's rough. The guy's dying. Pretend to be interested. Cut to Monita, pulling Kassad away from the strike again. He's badly wounded. What is she doing? Is she helping him fight or is she just like chilling until he needs a little bit She's of help. acting like the coach at the ring of a boxing match, like, you know, <laughs> pulling him back when he needs a break, prepping him, getting him ready for the next round. Not willing to, like, help him out at all? I don't think she can. It has to be single combat. Whatever. Okay. I don't know, Daniel. I don't know the rules, Daniel. <laughs> I don't think they know the rules. I don't think you can make up the rules. Monita knows the rules. Monita Monetta knows the rules. She just doesn't share. <laughs> so he's badly wounded. She takes a blue Taurus from her belt, holds it up, and a golden oval portal appears between them and the Shrike. She pulls Kassad through, and he finds himself in a wondrous place. And he knows that not only has he traveled through space, but also through time. Mm, It would be weirder if he had not traveled through time in this book. (laughs) Right? It's a pretty safe bet. It's a beautiful, lush planet with no sun, but the sky is so dense with stars, it's as bright as day. He supposes they must be near the center of the galaxy. He sees a group of strange men and women standing nearby, all covered in similar skin suits as his and Monita's. Monetta's. One, a giant of a man, comes over and with Monita and Monetta's help, he heals Kassad, after which Kassad gets up and notices that the group of people are incredibly diverse. Not only do their skin suits come in a multitude of colors, but they are also a mass of different shapes. Some are huge, some are only a few feet tall, some have butterfly-like wings they use to fly, like giant six-foot wings. Others are covered in fur with tails, just like a whole zoo of people. That's cool. And although they look so different, there was a common humanity he sees in their faces. It's the future of humanity? Basically, yes. Nice. 
Kassad asks where they are, and Manita explains, Moneta explains, that this is the future of humanity, or a possible future. This is where the time tunes were formed and launched backwards in time. Why were they formed again? Did we know yet? Um, to carry the strike back? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> to carry the strike back in time. That's the best I got. To make this future population? Like, why Why send them back? I don't know, Daniel. I don't have an answer yet. <sighs> do we have an answer at all? Simmons actually going to tell us. I think we do get one eventually, maybe. Okay. So then Monita Moneta opens another portal and pulls Kassad through. They're back in the Valley of the Time Tombs, this time in the present, quote-unquote, at the base of the Crystal Monolith. Kassad sees Saul bending over Brawn after catching her falling outside the Jade Tomb, but neither of them notice the Shrike is approaching them. Uh-oh. Kassad moves to head towards the Shrike to intercept it, but Bonita Moneta warns him if he fights the Shrike, the Shrike will kill him. He says... They're my friends, before bending down to pick up his old battle rifle and some grenades he had left here from his battle with Bonita Moneta and heads off. <laughs> Back to Severin, waking up to the sound of rain. The pain in his chest is incredible, but not so bad as the pain in his mind from all the visions. He eventually manages to go to sleep again. Well, good for him. That was like six pages in the book. I just skipped past <laughs> all of it. I appreciate that. <laughs> Cut to Theo, waking up from surgery on the ship to the sounds of piano music. He descends to the main deck to see the console at work on the piano. The ship's doors are open to a field of people listening to the concert. Okay. Finally, Daniel, you get your piano. Yay! <laughs> you don't seem to care at all. After all that, ask me every four seconds, is there a piano? Is there a piano? You finally get it. You don't care. I specifically wanted the console playing the piano. He is. I know. <laughs> I'm very excited about it, Sam. I, uh-huh, just, I, can tell. I hadn't gotten a chance to fully, uh, I don't know, figure out what was going on yet. <laughs> Why is the console playing a piano? So he's playing it for a concert of people out sitting outside the ship. Like he's on the balcony of the ship and it's open and everyone outside is listening. So they're just like chilling and he decided to play piano. So the group listening is its diverse group. Some looking like insects with manufactured antenna and compound eyes. Some covered in orange fur. Some tall and lithe. Some short and powerful. Ousters. They're all ousters, which were way more diverse than the ones they had fought at Brezia, which were all more or less similar to hegemony humans. Mm-hmm. The console finished up the concert to a applause, and as the crowd disperses, three ousters land with giant wings on the ship's balcony next to them. Is this like present time or some other time? Remember the console went to go negotiate with the ousters for the ceasefire? Mm-hmm. That's what they're this doing right now. Okay. And yeah. like, there's a lot of time jumping going on right now. I just want to make sure I was following. Well, Theo just woke up from being in the in the infirmary, which okay, okay, you, okay, they okay. just put in before they left. Got it, got it. So the console introduces Freeman Vans, who says he welcomes Theo with honor on behalf of the aggregate. He invites them all to meet in the administrative compounds to discuss their business and says they will send a boat for them shortly before flying off. So nobody's concerned that he, like, earlier, that he messed with the ousters? So presumably the ousters don't know he did that, because why would they know that? I don't know, because everybody knows everything in this book. Everybody either knows nothing or everything. He sent them a message that the machine malfunctioned and the other two were killed trying to fix it. Mm-hmm. So we'll get to that. Okay. <laughs> So we cut to Mina entering the infirmary. She finds Saray burned but healing. She speaks to him and he fills her in on... And the labyrinth? Does he tell her about the labyrinth? So she speaks to him and he fills her in on what Hardy had said and what happened. And then the whole story about getting out of Hyperion and not to go with the Korra's plan to shelter the people in the labyrinths. Okay. That makes me feel marginally better, but that doesn't mean they don't all die in the labyrinth. It doesn't mean like she might not have the power to do that if she's impeached or whatever. Right. Or get to vote no confidence, whatever the, the equivalent is in their parliamentary system. Terrible. They're interrupted by a message. The Catholic Church has just elected a new pope because the previous pontiff died a few days ago. Guess who it is? Uh, <laughs> <that> one <laughs> Catholic that we met earlier? <laughs> no, 
it's Father Paul Duray. Mazel tov. He's uh, the Pope. really? That's what I was going to guess. And then I just, just seemed, I don't know, less likely. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Duray's the new Pope. Congratulations. All hail Paul Duray. <laughs> Did he even know he was in line to become a Pope? I mean, any any Catholic is in line to be the Pope. <laughs> so I know they're like they're all in line to become a Pope, but don't you people – isn't there usually like a short list? Like, you have I mean, a possibility sure. usually, of becoming a Pope. Did Paul Duray know? it's a cardinal who becomes a Pope, but it doesn't have to be. <laughs> Like drawn straws, they're like, well, no, Paul Duray seems good. They all said, "Let's go with Paul Duray. He just came back from my period. He's immortal. He has a cruciform. He's probably holy. Let's give him a shot." <laughs> he had, he had a cruciform. He still has one. Belongs to Hoyt, but he still has one. Yeah, but that's like a whole different human being. Well, maybe they want a, a two for Pope. <laughs> two for one. <laughs> Poof, Pofer. <laughs> Pope for no. <laughs> hey, Daniel, what's a Pope for? A two for one Pope. <laughs> no. It's for praying, stupid. <laughs> That's it? what the Pope's for. <laughs> oh, what's a Pope for? Got it. It's a classic joke, Danielle. Come on. <laughs> Apparently not for me. I wasn't Catholic or Jewish. I, mean, I guess I don't know I mean, where you learned there's, it from. There's usually other forms of like, what's a butt for? Or what's a, you know, what, what's up? What's You have some up dog on you. It's that kind of joke. Okay. Um, Point yeah. is, he's the new Pope. She leaves him to go speak with Edward, who has been trying to contact him because like, hey, you're the new Pope. We need to talk. What a surprise. I didn't see Paul Duray becoming a Pope. Yeah, well, he To did. be fair, I'm not even sure they knew there was really a Pope, even though I knew there was some Catholicism running around. How can you have Catholics with a Pope, Danielle? That's like their whole <laughs> deal. What's the future. <laughs> Robo-Pope. I didn't, I didn't think that hard about the Pope situation with the Catholicism. We barely talked about the Catholics, Sam. All right. Anyway, here's the Pope. Congratulations. <laughs> and I like the idea of a Robo-Pope, like an AI Pope. I don't know. It's the future. It's weird. <laughs> he's the future. He's the Pope. It's, it's over. It's what happened. Good job, Mr. Duray. Pope Duray. His holiness, Danielle, please. <laughs> so oh. Mina returns to her office to record a message for the console. She knows he's reached the swarm and asks him to find out a bunch of things, like why the Alshers are attacking their planets, if they know where the core is, what their demands are for a ceasefire, and would the leader of the swarm aggregate be willing to meet in person? If so, she'll forecast Typerion to meet him. She then also says to inform them of the core's plan for the Death Wand explosive weapon, which many Force leaders want to use, and that they will not let the Alster invasion overrun the web. So, like, she doesn't want to use it, but her hand might be forced, basically. Got it. So the Alsters are just being super chill with the console being there at the moment i mean who knows they have a plan i mean they they know he's there they Don't know they he's all a, have a plan sam that's the whole point yeah. of this book I'm not sure they have a plan, but like, they know him. They know he's an agent of the hegemony, but he's also just one person, and I don't think they're too worried about the hegemony. The hegemony isn't a threat to them at this point. Okay. They trounced it pretty thoroughly at Hyperion, and they don't seem to have any trouble with the invasion. All right. So we cut to the console and the others, who are just finishing watching that message from Mina. The console tells Theo and Emilio Arundes about his role, how Gladstone had asked him to get to the Ousters to attack Hyperion, so they would have an excuse to bring Hyperion into the web as a means to influence the power structure struggle in the core, how he told the Alsters about the plan, and how they had their own plans for a timeline for opening the time tombs, and how he then betrayed the Alsters to open the tombs. He also mentioned that he just told the Alsters that he betrayed them. He, he made it clear he came clean to them as a way of showing good faith. So now, this meeting they're about to have with the Alsters could be as much trial 
as a diplomatic negotiation. Oh, that's interesting. So just then they see a boat descending a massive waterfall that flows up off the medium-sized asteroid they're parked on. So it's all very Escher-esque. We're like on this asteroid and they're being held down by a containment field, but there's this waterfall that's going up and off from this planetoid to another planetoid, containing another containment field. So everything's sort of like, the geometry is weird. And so they see this boat descending. (laughs) The fall of Hyperion. Geometry's weird. Yeah, it is. So the consul sees the boat and tells them to get ready. That's their escort. They're going to go talk to the ousters. And that's where we're going to end. Oh, good, good place to end. Yeah. I'm glad the consul's getting, you know, something. (laughs) (laughs) You were so focused on his character. I was really mad about it because they like made him, he was the opening of the first book, Sam. Yeah. (laughs) And then they just drop him and then he's like the most boring story in the world. Not anymore. He is the prime negotiator for what could be the end of the hegemony or the beginning of humanity's rebirth. Who knows? Find out next time on Hyperion. They won't be an answer. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Oh gosh. This is like never ending. Where's the story even going in one more part? Great question. There are two more books also (laughs) that come after that. (laughs) Do they, but you said they're a little bit different. They don't just like specifically continue the story, right? They continue the story, but like in a different way, more zoomed out kind of way, like a different, like they, 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 it jumps ahead quite a bit to the aftermath. Okay. <sighs> okay. Yeah. It gets real weird, Danielle. <laughs> <laughs> you think this is weird? We're just getting started with how weird it gets. Well, I'm excited that we got to delve into the console, console story, and I have um, uh, no faith that I will remember any of it the next time we <laughs> talk about it. And you're going to be mad at me. I can already hear your voice in my head being like, you were cared so much about the console. How can we can't remember a single thing that happened in this entire story? <laughs> it's a fair complaint, Danielle. And you can avoid it, though. Just remember. How can you not remember that he played the piano? <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's the only thing you seem to care about this entire book is the console playing piano. I mean, I was glad. I was glad he played piano. All right. Well, we'll find out next week in the conclusion. Uh, finally. Finally, the conclusion of the Fall of Hyperion. Yay! We're almost there, everybody. Now you know why this had to be seven parts, Danielle. There was no way I could cram another five chapters into this part. I mean, maybe. It depends on if we knew what was important coming up later. That's all important. Like, what part have... What, what even, like, character names have I mentioned briefly that have not come back? That's true. But, I mean, how important are those characters? Like, we could just throw the name out later and it would be fine. You'd be like, in this character, blah, 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 he does this XYZ thing and now he's part of the story. I can tell you, Danielle, they might still come back in the other <laughs> books. I don't know. I'm afraid to let anything slip by. But we'll find out at least some kind of conclusion next time. So gird your loins, get yourself ready, get a nice cup of cocoa so you can enjoy the final episode, the ultimate intelligence episode of the Fall of Hyperion. I'm looking forward to it. I'm sure you are for many reasons. <laughs> for many, many reasons. All right. Well, if you have no more questions, Danielle. I don't. Um, everything that I wanted to happen happened in that that section. That's impressive because usually nothing you want to have happen happens. I mean, I was excited to learn more about the console. Um, I'd be curious to – I know this is kind of like backtracking, so we didn't get more about Rachel and Saul, but I'm looking forward to yeah. see if anything happens with that. You're excited for the consumption of Keats or, or Severin? <laughs> Yeah, I'm, cu- I'm I'm super curious if he's really going to die of consumption in Italy, in fake Italy. <laughs> Maybe talk that fake. The thing about this book is everything's ambiguous. Like, it could be the fake Italy or it could not be the fake Italy. We just don't know. <laughs> 
I did, like didn't see that coming, so I'm, I'm very excited for him. I'm glad he's embracing it thoroughly. Well, good. We'll see what happens. I'm excited to see if Severin dies and how our new pope, His Holiness Paul Dere, handles his papal responsibilities. Oh, yeah. I totally forgot. Also, Paul Dere became a pope. Plot twist. Right. How cool is that? What the heck? <laughs> so good. All right. Well, if you want to help make Danielle and me the next pope, <laughs> We'd be such good Catholics. <laughs> We'd be such great popes, Daniel. I'm not saying about Catholic, but we'd be great popes. You can write in to join our campaign at bookretorts.com. We'd be great popes for anybody outside of the Catholic faith. <laughs> <laughs> wasn't, like, wasn't there like a point where there's like a pope and an anti-pope? Like, an, like a, uh, there are two popes and they're like fighting, which was the real pope, which was the anti-pope? I don't know. Which one, like which one would you like to be? Would you like to be the pope or the anti-pope? Daniel, I think we both have the answer for that. <laughs> Nobody's going to make me a pope. No. They'd have to, like, bless my soul a million times. You have the unfortunate problem of identifying as a woman. <laughs> yeah. Besides that, I mean, that putting is, that I mean, aside, there are also many reasons why I can't be a popess. If I was the, if I was the Pope Daniel, I would definitely make you a popette. Not a popette. Popette makes it sound like I, like, snap behind you while you do the vocals. But it's That's, a popess. Yeah. What, what are you talking about? I'm going to have you do that. You, you're there with the, the censors swinging it around to the beat. Sam and the popettes. Papple and the popettes. <laughs> Papal Sam with a popettes. There it is. <laughs> I really feel like the Catholic faith could use a like use a little push. It'd be a really good modernizer. Um, it'd be a good PR also, move. Great band. I mean, not to say that Christian music is amazing, but it could really use a a, a kick in the teeth from Papal Sam with a popettes. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a winner. I mean, I really I think it'd be as big as the Flying Nun. All right. Okay. Well, I remember the Flying Nun. She was great. <laughs> I know. I'm just, I I really feel like it would do a lot for Catholicism. All right. Well, if you want to see that happen, and this is us becoming Pope, if you want to bring <laughs> put people saying the Popettes into existence, bookretorts.com, still our address. <laughs> or patreon.com slash bookretorts. Or contact us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at bookretorts, which in this seems to have forgotten. it up. No, I was just adding in the Patreon since we were asking for people to help us support with us? our, support us with our uh, endeavor <laughs> to become Popes, Popes. I don't know. What's <laughs> Maple Sam and the Pope. What's the plural of Pope? Popey with an I? Popes. Who knows? Just Pope Sam. They're just like just nest. <laughs> it's Latin, Daniel. I don't know how it works. <laughs> Popeye. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. Money would really help us accomplish that goal, I'm sure. It's Popin, like oxen. Okay, Popin. Great. <laughs> Your new Popin, Sam and Daniel. Uh, we're going. We're definitely going to be excommunicated for this podcast. <laughs> That's okay. I'm only 50% Catholic on my dad's well, side. <laughs> before we before we anger another religion, we're going to end it there. Until next time, I guess, don't get tuberculosis. It's real bad news. Uh, yeah, don't, don't keeps it. Don't keeps it. All right. <laughs> Until then, bye. Take care, everybody.
We made it. And I mostly paid attention. I was pretty good to the last little bit. Yeah, you started fading pretty hard there at the end. Well, it's because I like, I like couldn't figure out what was going on for me. I think I just like missed a section. Like my brain like paused for a minute, and then I came back, and I was like, "Wait, what are we talking about?" <laughs> oh no, you can't zone out during Hyperion Day. That's the worst one. That's so <laughs> no, not I dirty. know that, but like sometimes it works out okay, and sometimes I'm like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, wait!" Oh, Danielle, big mistake. It's not on Amateur purpose. Hour. Like I was trying to, I was like paying a lot of attention until then. To be fair, there was a lot going on, so I, I understand. Yeah. 